Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'd like to welcome you today to Back in Control Radio. My name is David Hanscom. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon who's been doing spine surgery for over 30 years. I'm the author of a book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. I'd like to introduce our host today. He's Bernie Siegel, a friend and mentor of mine, who wrote a book called Love, Medicine, and Miracles in the late 70s, early 80s. It's a book that had a major influence on me about patients' capacity to heal. And this is well before medical school for me, and I was in college at the time when I first read this book. I was fascinated by it, but I didn't really understand it until maybe the last five or six years when I started watching my patients start to heal. And it was unpredictable. It was powerful. And I still don't understand it. I have a lot more respect for it. But anyway, I'm now in my own practice experience, and Dr. Siegel has experienced much of his career, of watching patients with really difficult problems heal. Dr. Siegel also has a lot of experience simply about the doctor-patient relationship. And it's had remarkable insight um, into that whole part of the process. The topic I'd like to focus on today is the doctor-patient relationship, and I'd like to introduce Dr. Bernie Siegel. Bernie, thanks for being on our show. Thank you. I already have a head full of stories. Um, <laughs> That's why we're here. Because when people say to me, or I tell them, you want to find a good doctor, it's easy. You go in and you say, are you ever criticized by patients, family, and nurses? And all the good ones say yes. Now, I've done this in, in, in public settings where there's a doctor I know, and I say, are you ever criticized? And people look at me like, why are you picking on him? And then he says, yes. I say, he knows I'm not picking on him. I knew his answer would be yes. He learns from his mistakes. He listens to patients, nurses, and family, you see. Because in the hospital, literally, I said to a nurse one day, what am I, the worst doctor in the whole damn hospital? All you're ever doing is telling me you know, what I'm doing wrong? She said, no, we know you care, so we tell you. Oh, when the doctors don't listen, we stop talking to them. Right. And boy, that made me feel a hell of a lot better, but oh. also woke me up, you see. Um, just a specific example. You know, we have talked and how you feel guilty and wish you could cure everything. So there's a lot of anger in me. Um, and my family got used to it. I mean, they know how to control me. With, with certain words, you know, like my wife saying, you're so handsome when you're angry. And then I stop being angry and, and can talk about what I'm feeling. Um, but one patient said to me, I'm giving everybody a bottle of liquor who took care of me, but not you. I said, why not? Because you're always angry. <laughs> I, said, I don't like what happened to you. I don't like what I had to do to you. And he said, yeah, but you took it out on me. Really? And I said, I'm sorry. He said, all right, I'll give you a bottle of liquor. Oh, but, my goodness. You know, when I thought about it, why did he take the time to tell me that he didn't like my behavior? Why didn't he just go out and tell other people, don't let him, you know, operate on you? Um, and I've had medical students work with me when I became a course at Yale. Um, and it was entitled Surgery, Mechanical or Healing Art. And the students would spend the whole day with me. And I thought every doctor needs that because you'd come out of a room and a student would say to me, you didn't answer the question. I said, what are you talking about? You didn't answer that question. 
we'd go back in the room and I'd say, he tells me I didn't answer your question. And the patients always said, yeah, he's right. You know, interesting. Like I was hearing something else, you know, not what they were talking about or what help they needed. And the other was, I began to ask patients to hug me. Okay. Um, two ways. When I wanted to hug them because of what they were going through, I would say, I need to hug you. Okay. And I realized what I was saying is, it wasn't you need a hug. I need to hug you. And the patient said, yeah, we know you needed a hug, so we gave it to you. You don't have to apologize now that you understand, you know, your problem and what you're going through. And so when you create a team, uh, yeah, people can forgive you if things don't all go well. Because I, I, I operate on a, a little boy and I, I mean, there's a lot of technical things I won't go into in terms of people listening, but the operation didn't cure his problem. Because okay? I made his mistake in judgment. Okay. And I didn't know that though. I mean, nobody called me up and told me so I'm walking around the hospital one day and I see his family is there with him. What is it? And I find out the obstruction he had wasn't cured. So they got another surgeon. They, but I went in and I said, I'm sorry. You know, I explained to them. It wasn't to make an excuse, but you know, that I'm human. I made an error in judgment. I'm sorry. I canceled their bill in the, our office because I would have felt guilty you know, charging them for something I screwed up. And, right. and, and what you find is those are the people who don't sue you. They, right. Because they know you care. They know you're hurting too. And we go through it and continue to help each other and go through it together. Right. You know, you just brought up a point I hadn't really thought about before, but it makes total sense because, you know, we go into medicine, we feel obligated to fix pretty much everybody we see as they walk through the door and we feel badly about it when we can't we also feel really badly if we have technical complication because i personally as a spine surgeon particularly know how well the patient would have done if it, the patient had done perfectly well if the surgery had been perfect i know that how that course would have been there's a if there's a technical complication like a nerve root damage etc i know how much suffering there is so the contrast for me is pretty tough but the, the idea that, and I'm sure I'm guilty as charged, is that I would actually direct that anger at the person that I caused the problem on, is somewhat of an eye-opening concept for me. That's really interesting to me. It, you know, another story that popped into my head, one of our children needed plastic surgery, and he went through it. A few years later, his surgeon banged into my car in the parking lot in the hospital and dented it. So I said, I'll fix it and send you the bill. And he started screaming at me. Really? Screaming at me. You never paid for your son's operation. You're kidding. As far as he's concerned, I kept the money. I okay. said, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I never received the bill. I never, you, you know, but he's screaming, you kept the money. I called up the insurance company and they said, we mailed you a check, it was never cashed. So it got lost in the mail. Right. I didn't know they mailed me something. or So they mailed me another one and I handed it to him. Right. But the thing I realize is the, if he hadn't paid me for operating on one of his kids, I wouldn't carry that resentment with me for the rest of my life. Right. What's it going to do to you? I've right. learned to forgive and love. And I mean it. 
from right. robberies and other things that have happened to me. Right. And I realize when you're carrying it, you're spending your whole day mad as hell at somebody. What right. does that do to you? So I always picture everybody as buying gifts to their kids or going on vacation or having some nice time right. rather than, oh, that rotten person, he didn't pay me for what I did for him, you know? And um, but, yeah. but you're right, that's, that's a lot of anger to carry around for a long time. So going back to the talk, doctor-patient relationship, I mean, I think there's lots of variables involved, including, you know, even, um, you know, quantum physics and mirror neurons and just whatever it is that actually affects it. But if a, if a doctor is excited about themselves, they're happy, they're excited, we know laughter is contagious. And we know that I had a physical therapy group years ago who just flat out was so energized and so excited about the patients that they would fill different physical therapy groups around the city. I would send them to that group. And I don't think the actual physical therapy is that much different but probably 90% of the time, 90% of the time they come back doing just fine. But the energy that these people put into the patients was remarkable. So I started to have a sort of a feel at that point that my interaction with the patient was a problem or a benefit. Some of the therapists are touching their patients too. True, true. And a lot of, and a lot of physicians these days, we hear this complaint a lot now is that the doctor never even did a physical examination. And I know, my fellows go to different programs around the country and I know surgeons are telling the fellows to go in the room and sign the patient up for the surgery without even talking to the patient at all. They just look at the film and say, look, sign this person up. So I remember one day in the office, I had five patients in a row, literally stomp out of the room, stomp down the hallway, literally yelling, hands come to charlatan. And I started to figure out, I finally put this together that I was in a bad mood. I was not in a great mood that day and I triggered my patients. And so that negative energy transmitted right to my patients. Conversely, since that day, day and time, I've learned to really enjoy my practice more, enjoy my patients more. We just have all sorts of patients getting better that I've never seen get better before. But I think that the doctor-physician relationship is a pretty big deal. And I know that's one of the things that you're um, most renowned for. And right now we have a tremendous problem with physician burnout Right. And one of the problems is that we're limited in, you know, 10, 15 minutes per patient. We have production quotas now. It become a real well, problem. You know, I, yes, the insurance companies uh, or your practice, whoever's heading it will tell you, you're taking 15 minutes a patient and uh, the average in the department is 10 minutes. So we're cutting your salary. Right. You have a right to either say, okay, fine, cut my salary, but I want to take care of people. Right. Or what I said to one insurance company was, because this is literally a letter I got from them. We don't pay surgeons to talk. Wow. This was a, a self-destructive lady who was having surgery uh, every three to six months. She'd get somebody to cut her up. Right. To punish herself. And I said to her, I can t tell what you're doing. You want me to help you? I will. So she right. became my patient. And I told the insurance company, look at the last year and see who has saved you more money. And they sent a letter back saying, okay, keep talking. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's that part of the thing. Are you taking care of the person or just treating a disease? And right. I found, again, when you took care of the person, uh, they could forgive you. Uh, and also they did better because it was somebody who cared taking care of them. Right. Uh, and, you know, and we're not trained, as I said, to take care of people. We're trained to treat disease. Right. 
you know, it's, well, again, what happens? See, I, I feel that when doctors are being trained, they should, all of them should have to spend a week in bed in a hospital where they are not known with some terrible diagnosis. Interesting. And watch how people treat you, see. Then you become a native. Okay. I was in the hospital with an infection. I was so worn out. I developed an infection. I got hospitalized. I learned a hell of a lot about what it's like to lie there in the bed right. you know, with all the stuff going on and became a better doctor. And right. I think, again, we, but on the other hand, uh, there's a wonderful story. Um, the Angel Who Troubled the Waters by, oh, I forgot his name will come to me. But in it, um, an angel stirs this little pond. And if you go in the water while the angel's doing it, you're healed of all your afflictions. Okay. And a doctor keeps going there. And one day, ah, oh, the angel's here. Oh boy, am I lucky. But the angel steps in front of him and says, not you, draw back. And he says, what are you talking about? Just because I'm a doctor? No. Without your wound, where would your power be? It's your melancholy that trembles into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love service, only the wounded soldier can serve. Draw back. And on the way home, as he's walking down the street, he realizes how many people scream out at him, come in here. Our son only talks to you. Come in here. Our daughter locks herself in the bedroom. She only comes out when you're here. Come in here. You know, and he realizes how much help he is giving people. And I see that, you know, that if, if you have no wound affliction, then you don't know how to help people. Right. Um, that's the part that I try to get across to doctors. But what I also tell people to do is have what I call a key word or message. You see, like our kids, if I became overbearing, they would say, you're not in the operating room now. And that would calm me down and we'd start to talk to each other, you know, like human beings. Um, and so again, if we allow people to say something, they don't have to say you're a terrible person, what's wrong with you? Right. Uh, I had a pin with the word attitude on it that I used to give to people. And one woman used it with her husband on cancer. She would twist it around and say, straighten out your attitude. So again, you know, she wasn't yelling at him, criticizing, him and they could both laugh and he'd work at it. And right. families need to do that, you know, to have that kind of message to say, hey, you know, like my wife saying, you're so handsome when you're angry. She never cured any problem, but she calmed me down and then we worked on the problem. Um, and we have to work like that with each other and communicate with each other. Um, and right. then amazing things happen. Well, it's ironic right now that we have all a lot of technological advances. We can do wonderful things to people when we need to. But looking at my own experience, if I hadn't gone through my own pretty severe burnout, and again, I was in the spot you just described of having some very, very deep wounds, I honestly never would have written the book. I would have no insight into chronic pain or suffering unless I went through it. But we are trained to treat the diagnosis and, and not really talk to the patients. And what's ironic right now about this burnout rate in medicine being between 50 to 60%, I don't, think, I don't think, first of all, patients realize how high of a number that is. And second of all, I don't realize how much trouble they realize that their doctors are in. It's pretty deep trouble. And finally, you know, how much impact it actually, actually has on their own healing if the patient right. themselves isn't able to really 
the patient. But what's ironic in this day and age is that burnout rates are skyrocketing. There's article after article written about it to the point where we don't need to write it anymore. I've actually not seen anything really done about it. But the most ironic part is the one thing we've had taken away from us in modern medicine is time. It's the one thing we need. And I gave a lecture back east, actually two lectures pointed out that essentially everything we do in spine care, whether it's rhizotomies and different types of spine surgery, have actually been docu documented to be ineffective. But the ones that are not covered by insurance, the effective, I'm sorry, and all those are covered by insurance. So we're literally covering ineffective treatments that have been documented to be ineffective. Then the effective treatments like relaxation, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, talking to patients are not covered. So right now in medicine, we're actually pretending to do medicine. So it's really a big problem. And so then the other irony is that I have found out that the number one thing that prevents burnout is actually talking to the patients. Right. So yeah. right now that time factor is huge. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective. Let, let me give you your a, a practical experience, which was in a medical journal entitled Not on My Shift. Okay. Three residents are taking care of the intensive care unit, eight hour shifts. And one of them noticed that each time the guy coming off the shift would say to the other, not on my shift. And that was about this critically ill guy who they were keeping alive eight hours at a time. I now, see. Was he enjoying life? No. You know what I mean? They were showing off that he didn't die on their shift. Right. And so this one realized, what are we doing to this man? He's not living, but we're keeping him from being dead. Right. And so he let him die and wrote an article in the medical journal called Not On My Shift. Interesting. When you see death as a failure, you don't even hear the word death in the hospital. People don't die. They pass. They cross the bridge. Um, I heard at Yale, he bradied. I said, what are you talking about? That's <laughs> the name of the building the morgue is in. Oh, boy. So you don't die, you brady. I mean, oh, it, it's so bizarre. Right. But, you know, we have to learn. Death is inevitable. It's not something to be ashamed of. Right. It's not a failure. So right. help people. And I found that, yeah, that was something I really liked to do. When people were ready to die, I helped them, you know, relate to their family. Well, one lady in coma. Hospice would not let her be admitted because she had a feeding tube. Okay. You take the tube out, you're murdering her. That's the lawyer. Right. I said, I'll take the tube out. You just show up without it. So, you, you know, you didn't take it. No, no, we know the lawyer refused her. So I admitted her to the hospital, went over, and I said to the family, tell her you love her and it's okay for her to go. And they all start crying. So I said to her, the lady in a coma, but they hear you. I said, look, your family's around the bed. We know what you're going through. We appreciate it. We also know your love will stay with us. So if you need to go, it's okay. In a few minutes, she died. Wow. Now, why aren't doctors trained to do that? Right. You know what I mean? Instead of not on my shift, why right. don't you say to the guy, hey, if you need to go, it's okay. Right. It's amazing the things I've seen. <laughs> I'm laughing because I said to one lady, if you need to go, it's okay. She said, I'm not going anywhere. And <laughs> she was a survivor, you know? 
But yeah, she wasn't upset with me for saying it. I didn't say you're going to die in two months. You know right. what I mean? I'm not predicting anything. I'm just right. telling her I'm here to help her do what's right. Because mm -hmm. I see people die literally within a week when right. a healthcare plan said, we're not paying for cataract surgery. You have lung cancer. So you're not going to live for very long. So we're not going to pay for cataract surgery. He right. got into bed and died within the week because his wow. life was screwed up. He can't see what the hell's the point, you know, of living, he felt. Right. So again, I've had members of my family, my father, die laughing. We had a wonderful party. My mother was telling stories about their early life. Okay. Absolutely ridiculous. And everybody in the room was laughing. I thought my father was going to change his mind and not die um, because he looked so healthy and having so much fun. But when the last, this is the other thing about consciousness, the last person who was going to come to this party at the hospital in his room walked in, that's when he took his last breath and died. Interesting. And he's basically was comatose also. Um, I mean, he could hear, but how does he know? I mean, that consciousness, he knew everybody's here. I can go now. And he looked so healthy when he died. Right. I really thought he was going to change his mind because right. of all the stories he was hearing. Well, I like, I like to segue just a little bit here because, you know, I think medicine in general has done a bit of a disservice using the term mind versus body. And to me, it's just a unit. And then a metaphor I like to use is uh, try flying a Boeing 747 airplane without a computer. You can't do it. And of course, the human body is infinitely more complicated than a Boeing airplane. And every cell in the body and vice versa is intertwined with the nervous system and vice versa. So it's really just a unit response. So again, I don't look at this as a psychological issue. It just look, do I want to survive? Do I not survive? And I think the brain and the body make that decision together or not. Then connecting to people around you, family, friends, but also your doctor is a big deal. And I think the problem with today's patient-physician relationship is that people want to feel safe. They want to trust somebody. And when they can't relax and just talk to their doctor for a bit, which is usually very confidential, but important, they've lost a major factor in healing is just not being, being able to have the time and feeling safe with their physician. What I, what I tell people to do is to become a person. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, sometimes doctors are nice helping patients too. One of them said, the doctor told her, he wants her to bring him a humorous birthday card. And she thought, what a nerve. He's telling me what, but she realized when she was getting the card, he did her a favor because it's a humorous card. And she's looking through all of them, you know, and kind of oh, smiling, right. thinking that wise guy, look what he did for me. So right. I tell patients, you got to become a person to your doctor. Um, if you go into the operating room, it's definitely put notes on your body. You know, not this one, stupid, don't mow the lawn, <laughs> all kinds of things that, that, you know, you become that crazy patient. And right. that's the benefit. When you're a crazy patient, you're not room 27 with a gallbladder problem. You're a person. They, and you're less likely to be killed due to medical errors when they give you the treatment that's supposed to be for the person in the next room. Because right. they know you as that crazy patient. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you try to become a unique person. And it can be bringing your doctor gifts. Then they remember you. You know, it, it's little things, but you stand out then as a person. 
I'm also curious, you know, your stories are profound. I mean, your hospital staff, other physicians knew really what you did in your results, but let me interrupt you right there. Everybody thought I was crazy. When I played music in the operating room, they told me I was an explosion hazard and shouldn't bring in instruments in. But right. let me say this, the point I make and why I interrupted you, nobody's against success. Right. So when things work, right. everybody starts imitating you. Right. They, then they're not saying, oh, that's just a case history. That's just a story. That's not scientific. There's no research. If something works, everybody starts imitating you and saying, thank you. So wow. Tell stories and don't try to prove something, just live it. Just and do it. In portraits, I have several paintings around the house of doctors caring for people, but they're not caring. They're not touching. They're all thinking. You know, there's somebody in the bed dying and the doctor's got his chin, you know, in his hand, thinking. Why isn't he holding the patient's hand? Why right. isn't he sitting next to the bed? And it blows my mind over and over again, all these, some famous paintings, but the doctor is never in contact with the patient. Interesting. Do you have any thoughts on, what year did you start practicing medicine? About 1961, I think. 51, okay. Then when, when did you retire from clinical practice? 89. Because I was talking to people, and as one guy said, you can help more people talking, you know, uh, right. and writing too. Right. He said, you know, you can help more people if you write a book than trying to talk. But I realized I can do more good empowering patients than right. I could staying in the office. So, what do you think of the last, let's say, the last 10 years of your practice compared to the first 10 years as far as the changes that you saw in medicine? His effect on healing. Well, yeah, there were things that I thought were crazy, but weren't crazy. It's just that they weren't in medical literature. They weren't in surgical journals. They were in psychiatric journals. Uh, things like Carl Jung wrote a hundred years ago. He interpreted a dream and diagnosed a brain tumor. Right. So you can't deny it. He did. And so I began to ask patients. I mean, partly because of my experience. I drew some pictures for Elizabeth Tudor Ross. She was helping me deal with my emotions and all the stuff I was burying. And right. I was amazed at what she knew from pictures, the drawings. Okay. So I went to the hospital with crayons and I said to people, draw pictures. And then I saw anatomy. I mean, I saw the anatomy because I'm a doctor. Therapy, right. Art therapists don't see it. But yeah. see, that's how you change the hospital. You bring pictures in, put them up, you know, when you're going to operate on somebody and everybody, oh, wow, that's, in, oh my, look at that. Because they could see, you know, the liver, uh, the penis, all kinds of things in the drawing and know what is going on. And I may add, because of the children, you get a kid who picks up a black crayon, draws himself like an insect on the operating table. Okay. I said to his parents, he needs your love. Why is he there? Oh, they're teasing me in the locker room in the gym. Can you fix my body? I said, he can spend his life getting plastic surgery. Right. At your love, he won't need, you know, to have everything fixed. He'll feel right. good. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like to, um, 
finish with just a couple points. I guess my two questions. One is, what would, is your advice for young physicians starting out now as far as developing some of these skills that you talked about? And also, what's your advice for patients when they interact with their doctors in this day and age where we're so production focused? Well, I'd say the word patient was derived from submissive sufferer. I'm sorry, which word? Sufferer. Submissive sufferer. Okay. And I'd say don't ever be a good patient. Okay. Because then you're not going to speak up, cause trouble, do anything, uh, and you're not going to be cared for. So it's okay to speak up and be known as a person when you're a patient in the hospital. It can be through humor. It could be through anger. I mean, whatever. If you get angry, you can say, I'm sorry. But, right. you know, but to make sure they know you as a person. It could be decorating your room with crazy things. Um, because when I think about it, too, let me mention the doctor's offices today, so many of them, when you're sitting and waiting for the doctor, all you have to read is what you're going to die of on the wall. You know, all these posters. <laughs> right. I love my, my doctor has lovely colored rooms with outdoor scenes. <laughs> and you see, and those things we know from studies. You right. do better, heal faster, you know, if the environment in your room is a healing one. Right. So you can do all those things too. And, and be what I call a respite a responsible participant. Speak up, participate, take responsibilities, and talk to your doctors. Um, and make decisions based on what you want in your life, not what somebody is dictating to you. Excellent. And what about for young physicians who are really pushed hard to be productive, we're monitored, we're called on the carpet for medical workers not being perfect, et cetera. So it's a pretty tough world right now for physicians. What would be your advice to physicians who really it's, it's tricky because I well, also stop and tell you what just popped into my head. Okay. I started keeping a journal of my feelings oh, because okay. I couldn't deal with all this stuff. So I would sit and pour it out on a piece of paper. One night I forgot to hide it, which was a good thing. My wife found it. Okay. She said, Nothing funny in your journal. I said, my life isn't funny. What are you talking about? And then she told me crazy stories that I told the kids and her when I'd come home from the hospital that day. You know, like walking into the wrong patient's room and this naked lady starts screaming because she doesn't know who the hell I am. I, I went to the wrong hospital one day and said, is my patient here? And they all thought I was teasing them. So they said, yes. And then they said, what are you doing here? I was in the wrong hospital. So, you know, crazy things happen. People right. would laugh, but they never got in my journal. Right. And thank God my wife said that because then I would keep track of the nice things that happened too and the good things that happened. And we okay. have to remember that, you know, don't just hang on to the tragedy. Right. A journal. Right. So both things come out gotcha. and you need to become aware of them so you don't get sick because of all the stress and tension that you've stored up inside of you. Right, right. Well, Bernie, thank you very much, as always, why it's remarkably insightful to talk to you personally, and also hope, I'm sure our audience will feel the same way. So I'd like to um, thank you, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again very soon. All right, one last quote um, from William Saroyan. 
He said, everybody alive is an actor, but almost everybody alive is a very pathetic actor. And that's why we're given a lifetime to rehearse and practice. And I say for people to remember that, see my humor, I always say WWLD. And they say to me, what are you talking about? I said, what would Lassie do? So just think about that. And why I never stopped talking. True story. And then I promise I'll stop. You know, you veterinarian. She has a mass, going to have a mastectomy tomorrow for breast cancer. Um, I came in and she's a wreck. I come back later and she looked very calmer. I said, what is it? What happened? She said, I remembered all the pets, the animals I operated on. I amputate legs, jaws, and they wake up and they lick their owner's faces. They know they're here to love and be loved and teach us a few things. Oh, interesting. When I thought of them, I just fell right asleep. Fantastic. All the tension was gone. So I'm always saying to people, you know, what would your dog do, your cat do, Lassie do? But it's to get them to realize, rehearse and practice until you become the person you want to be. Perfect. Thank you very much. That was, that was fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.